Okay, uh, we are looking at Colossians 2, uh, 8, 9, and 10. So if you want to mark that, uh, you see there in your worship folder, that is the, the target text this morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about just touching down on Colossians 2, 6, and 7 as sort of a core Bible verse for our church. Um, I thought about sort of revisiting a a major theme for our church, which is the renewal of the heart. And I've learned a big lesson. And the big lesson is, uh, don't do it in Colossians. <laughs> uh, don't, don't just touch down in Colossians, because Colossians is a, uh, a complex uh, book. Uh, lots of ideas are layered on top of each other. And so a couple of weeks ago, I made a decision, well, it's really not fair to the text to just uh, go in and preach on one aspect of it. So Colossians 2, 1 through 10, uh, needs more treatment. Uh, and so we've been, uh, this is our th- a third, uh, third go at it with, uh, with Colossians, Colossians 2. So um, that's how we're here this morning. The vision of Christ in Colossians is massive. We've been looking at that, an exalted Christology. Um, but something is really happening that is threatening that exalted Christology. And it is a teaching that has uh, crept into the church and exists in the area where the Colossians live. The teaching diminishes Jesus as this extraordinary mediator. You need something else. You need something else. And so Paul is very protective of the truth that the gospel needs nothing else. The gospel needs nothing else. So Part of the work of, of pastoral preaching, of teaching in the church, is to protect the church. And uh, so that's what's happening actually right now, is that we're going to focus on the gospel and this exalted, exalted Christ. There's lots of ideas. There's lots of ideas in the world about uh, spirituality, lots of ideas about what that looks like. I'm a, a product of Southern California, um, and I grew up... Uh, sort of getting a feel for, you, you never really learned this in a classroom, but in Southern California, you learn to sort of accept all kinds of ideas, um, and you're sort of kind of this, this sort of this, this just kind of this coolness about the way you, you live. And uh, it was in, in California in the 60s that the, the concept of spirituality actually developed without any kind of formal, organized quality to it. Um, I've always been sort of curious about the person who says, I, uh, I'm not into organized religion. I always think, well, they must be into disorganized religion then. But uh, spirituality is, is a big thing. In fact, that'll, that'll gain you sort of a, an audience. Uh, so you're into spiritual things, and that can, uh, can, it goes a long, long way. Um, but spirituality is, you, could, you can drive a truck through that concept. What do you, what do you mean by Spirituality. And then this leads to really thinking carefully about sort of the nature of things. I realize that most of you this week didn't consider what, what's the nature of things. Like, what is that? That's like a big concept. What is that? And we live in a time and an age when if you begin to talk about the nature of things, most people, speaking in the language of the 60s, will say, that's heavy, man. That's heavy. Meaning that the idea that you're really going to talk about oh, philosophy or ultimate ideas is actually something people don't want to do today. 
And they might talk about some pop spirituality or some pop psychology or something that makes, makes it on the talk show. But to really wrestle things to the ground and say, no, this is really the truth about things, that's hard for people to do. And so we leave. We have this kind of open-mindedness um, that I kind of grew up with in Southern California. To each his own. Everybody sort of picks and chooses your own way in, in life. My own personal experience, though, growing up, I, and I was thinking about the moment when I sort of left my childhood, and I don't think I entered into adulthood. That might have happened a couple of years ago. But uh, um, that moment when you leave your childhood, do you remember that? Do you remember that? It, was it a moment? Was it, was it a series of events in your life? For me, it was in the early 70s. Uh, my father worked with overseas American schools and seeing um, different cultures, for the first time, uh, arriving in Bangkok, we were on our way to a country called East Pakistan, which is known as Bangladesh now. And we were in Bangkok, overcoming jet lag, staying at some friends my father knew, um, and waking up about 4 a.m. and looking out onto the street and uh, seeing uh, Buddhist monks uh, going door to door collecting food that had been left out for them. Um, I remember in uh, Bengal or East Pakistan uh, going on a field trip. Imagine this in seventh grade, uh, going out into a field trip to, to study Hinduism. And we gathered around a, what looked look like about a 25-foot pyramid-shaped stone figure thing and this had been kind of become a sacred kind of place because these are really rare in, the, in a delta land like Bangladesh. So um, this stone had become a place where they had engraved faces, a little two-inch faces, hundreds and hundreds of faces. Most of them were pretty scary looking, and they were the images of, of Hindu gods. Um, so there was the, the Buddhist monks walking the streets, um, essentially taking the vow of poverty. Uh, Hinduism proposing uh, its own answer to the problem of mankind. Everyone has some kind of solution. Everyone is coming to some kind of conclusion um, about the nature of things. And I remember um, the most alive people I ever sort of saw or hung around or heard were rock and roll, rock and roll musicians. They were the ones who were alive and taking, the, taking life by the, by the tail. And uh, I remember they seemed to be the ones who were in on, on kind of what things were all about. They sang with boldness and they, they sort of took the stage by storm and they sang with confidence about romance or defiance or whatever it was. We're all trying to figure our way out in the world and trying to figure out a, a, a way of understanding things. I remember as a kid uh, living there overseas and how important music was and staring at the album covers. I remember hours and hours looking through George Harrison's album, All Things Must Pass, expressly stating uh, Hindu, Hindu philosophy. Well, 
it's kind of a heavy thing to be in the book of Colossians because the Apostle Paul doesn't back off from the, the, the big ideas. Ultimate reality. And ultimate reality is a person. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the final nature of things is personal. We live in a personal universe and a personal God um, who has been offended by sinners and, and of his own accord did something about it. And so Jesus Christ is the mediator. He is now the glorified, ascended king ruling over all the universe. And the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to grasp this extraordinary Christ and not drift from him. And so in preaching, which you, you, you take some kind of a, of a heavy text like this and a kind of intellectual uh, uh, thoughts, and you want, that, you want it to apply to people, and you're working hard to figure out what does the average person on Sunday morning, what do they need to hear about these kinds of things? What, what, what impacts them? And I came up with something that I think applies, at least in our first point, I hope our second point and our third point applies to non-Christians and applies to Christians. And I think the first idea coming out of Colossians 2, 8, is that there is something everyone has. Something everyone has. If you're uh, not a believer in Jesus Christ here, I think this applies to you. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this applies to you. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world. The Colossians were a well-established church. They were an orderly church. The Apostle Paul tells tells us that in Colossians 2.5. He was thankful for their good order. And now they are under the threat of being taken captive by some new ideas. Someone is going to present to them that they need more than this exalted Jesus. Jesus who had completed salvation, they need something else. And Paul suggests that the Colossians are in danger of actually going backwards and going back to elementary things. Let me read for you Colossians 2.16, which isn't printed there in the worship folder, but Colossians 2.16, he says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Someone's coming along, and they're suggesting Jesus is good, but keeping this festival really makes you approved before God. Jesus is good, but you shouldn't eat this kind of food. Isn't that strange? Someone is coming along saying, what you really need are religious rites, religious practices. These these give you true status before, before God. There was a group of, uh, of Jews who... Theologians or scholars call them the Judaizers. They sort of follow the Apostle Paul 
he would establish a church, and then they would come in and they would introduce falsehoods about Jesus, introduce legalisms. It's likely the Judaizers are at work here in, uh, in this region where the Colossian church exists. Let's go back to, say, ceremonial washings. Uh, circumcision is mentioned in Colossians 2. All these things pointed to Christ. These were sort of spiritual training wheels. But these people are coming along saying, no, they actually make up a true spirituality. And so what do we all have in common? We all live, or I should say more clearly, what is something that everyone has? And I would say it's this. We live for tangible affirmations. We have a desire for tangible affirmations that I'm living the life. A tangible affirmation that gains something for me. Christians and non-Christians are attracted to certain things, practices. They can be from our culture, what it looks like to be successful, what it looks like to be spiritual. These things are brought in, and the exalted Christ is diminished whenever we turn back to some practice that will be something that enhances us or makes, gives us some status. We have an anxious quality about us where we're even uncertain as Christians and we can listen to, to false teaching. This gains something for me. This gives me an advantage. Paul is, is presenting, though, that Jesus is ascended and he is the one in whom the whole of salvation has become complete. There's nothing left to be done for us that would add to salvation. It's interesting, though, that the gospel actually goes at, after the core areas where we would take pride in some, something that distinguishes us from other people. And so it could be a religious practice. It could be a heritage that we have. It could be our ethnicity. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul uh, states, as if he's almost pointing to the sky, he says, here, referring to the gospel, here in this completed Jesus who has finished salvation, here there is not Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, these distinctions here on the, on, on the earth that perhaps put one group above another, or at least in that group's per, perceived uh, in their mind, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, but in Christ, Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. What, what Paul is guarding against is the tendency to sort of to drift into some sort of dis distinction, some sort of way where I distinguish myself. And I think this is what we all have, all of us. Again, if you're not a Christian here today, there's a, there's a, a hope in you or longing in you that you could somehow be affirmed by maybe the traditions of our culture, a certain level of success, a certain way of living, this is, this is true life. This is what is going to gain you, gain you something. 
But in Christ, the complete salvation has been accomplished. In religion, there's always something to be done. There's always something to be accomplished, something to be achieved. Some tangible affirmation that I'm living the life or I'm on the right road or the right, uh, 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 I've got the right background, I've got the right something, it's, it's, it's mine. In the Reformed Presbyterian Church, it's a, it's a funny thing uh, when you talk about someone's spiritual heritage. Uh, this happens, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how often this happens, but sometimes there'll be a person come along who they sort of pride themselves in being Scottish Presbyterian. Those are sort of the elites. Well, Scottish Presbyterians in Christ, that doesn't matter. Hard to admit that, but it doesn't. We have this tendency, though, don't we? Something about us is anxious and restless and not fully dwelling upon the finished, complete work of Christ. And so Colossians is all, really, it's very heavenly and it's very spiritual. Colossians is very heavenly and very spiritual in the sense of Christ is all that you need. Christian, a repeated theme, you've been raised with Christ. Christian, you died with Christ. Everything about you is in Christ. He's the one who makes you distinct and his own. And Colossians 3.1 says things along the lines of seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And in the book of Colossians, that earthly thinking is practices that distinguish me, things I have that are to my advantage, things that demonstrate that I am making progress. Get rid of the spiritual training wheels. Actually grow, grow up. It's funny, some of the people who take great, um, great pride in their theological development, take great pride in their grasp and understanding of Scripture, sometimes these folks actually hold on to certain kinds of legalisms. I remember one time, a person called, this was years ago, out of the blue I got a phone call and the person asked, do you sing from the Trinity hymnal? I said, yes, we do. And there was something in my, my answer that didn't quite work for them. And then the strange question, do you hold it in your hands? <laughs> it really happened, folks. Do you hold it in your hands? And I said, well, no, we have a worship folder and we print hymns from the Trinity hymnal. Now, I got a click. I didn't, even, I didn't even say, well, brother, I'm so glad you're singing from it. Nothing. Now, what I want to grasp, for you to grasp is this, is, is you've got to be very, very careful with what you add to Jesus because it will affect your fellowship with other Christians. That's why we have the epistle to the Colossians because he loves them. And he knows that this could possibly destroy them as a church. It's interesting. I looked this up. The Trinity hymnal, um, 
um, has the hymn. Uh, Joel, you'll have to help me w- with it. Um, but um, it is um, Rock of Ages. I'm sorry, Rock of Ages. And I knew there was a, a line in the hymn that says, nothing in my hands I bring, right? Rock of Ages, right? So the, I found this out. So the Trinity hymnal denies holding the Trinity hymnal. I just want to make that point. So, uh, if he calls back, I'll know what to say. <laughs> so you may not think of yourself as traditional. And there's, there's, good, there's good things in tradition. But here's what happens is that owns us. Now, here's the other thing. Going along with my, my thesis here is that all of us have something. We have a desire for tangible affirmations that we're okay. okay? Sometimes people have asked me, because they find out what I do, and they'll ask me this question. They'll say, have you always been religious? And I would tell them that I came to Christ when I was 19, and I said, no, this is, no this is, I, I have not always been doing this. And then as I answer, I do notice something. Not, this has happened more than once. Is that people uh, ad- can admire someone like me for, because they think that I'm adhering to some religious tradition and doing it well. In other words, I have energy that they don't have. I notice that there's a heaviness in their comment about admiring me. Meaning, I can do something. I can stay religiously energetic, but they can't. In some way, I have merited, through religious energy, something that they don't have. And so I have to very carefully move the conversation away from me and away from religious energy or all those notions there's the dropped head and there's the sadness that I can never be like you in your devotion. And there it is, in a very subtle way, a kind of legalism. You have distinguished yourself in a way that I have not. It's very important for us to remind ourselves of how God found us. All our religious devotion meant nothing. All our adherence to tradition meant nothing. All our personal heritage meant nothing. The Colossian church was being judged. That's a very hard thing to experience. And to get through it, you have to have a robust Christology. You have to have an exalted Jesus who loves you and has done everything to secure your salvation. Colossians 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's rigorous self-discipline and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So we all have this need for affirmation 
that we're okay. And the task for us as a church, the task for us as individuals, is to continue to remember this exalted Jesus who has completed, finished our salvation. And our adherence to this or that adds nothing to it. So that's what we all have. We all have that in common. Now, here's the, the next thought from verse 9. Is, uh, it connects, and it's hard to uh, preach on just a verse and, and not connect with the next verse. But verse 9, um, it says this. Uh, as we've been thinking about uh, let no one uh, hold you captive to philosophy and all the, these, these elementary ideas and this religious routine, he says here, here's the contrast. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's Paul's answer to tr- traditions that people are trusting in. For in him, the whole fullness of, God, of, of deity dwells bodily. That body of Jesus is the body in which salvation took place, not your body. And anyone who is in Christ is fully complete in him. God did not wait for us to be wise enough, to conform to some religious practice enough, to comply with some prescribed way of living enough. God did not wait, but he completed salvation, and he gave proof of this salvation by raising his son from the dead. And what we need to know is that the fullness the fullness of what we're after, the sense that we're really living, that that life is in Christ. He has the fullness that we're after. And so this this answer to anxious human beings is this one in whom deity dwells in fullness. So again... We're looking around, for me as a teenager, again, rock musicians. They were the ones who were alive. They were the ones who plug it in and make it happen. They took the world by storm, and they were so confident, so free. And something about them, they were, they were, they were kind of like a mystery religion. They had a knowing about things. They had an understanding. They had tapped into some mystery that I wasn't, I wasn't tapped into. Some experience had brought them into a world where true life could be found. Jim Morrison of the Doors sings, Break on through to the other side. There's something out there. There's something out there, and you've got to break through this, this material existence, and you'll, you'll come to it. See, it is, it is a spirituality. Greatly influenced by the period of, the, of romanticism, much rock music made, uh, made ideas accessible to the average person, not like Beethoven or Brahms. Something simple and, and for the average person could understand and grasp it. And romanticism was really teaching this, there's a, there's a, there's a spirit within me, and it, it just needs to be freed Get your civilization off of me. And I want to I experience life in the best way is no rules, no regulations. Free me. I want to be free. 
and I will break on through to the other, other side. An intense experience will, will finally bring me to a place of peace and great, great enjoyment. To this, which is not unusual in, 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 uh, in world history, to this quest, this quest for, the, for mystery, this quest to break through the things, we have a sense there's something out there, but what is it? To this, the scriptures give us the body of Jesus, the exalted, risen Jesus, and it's in him the fullness of our life dwells. I realize those are words like, how do I connect with that? What do you mean? And over and over and over in the book of Colossians, the way we grow, the way we become alive is through this union with Christ faith in him. He is infusing his life in us. So we have something that's unexpected that no one thought of. No one imagined in all the philosophies of the world that God would come in human form, live the life we could not live, die the death that we needed for ourselves before a holy God, rise from the dead, and now he is a ascended king representing a new humanity, redeeming us. No one would imagine that. And yet God, God did it. So we have something that we all have in common, something we all have, that is the need for some affirmation, some tangible way of affirming that we're okay. Secondly, we have something that not, we would not have imagined, and that is we have God coming in human form, dying on a cross, and rising for us. And then thirdly, we have an idea which is what everyone, everyone needs. And look at verse 10 to, to explore this idea. And you have been filled in him. Look at the way that is written. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Beyond some kind of private spirituality, beyond someone having a personal vision or a personal sense of this is the way life is, we have Scripture telling us that one has risen, he has ascended, and he is authorized. He and he alone is authorized. But authorized to do what? Authorized to put forever away from us what f- our, our greatest fear the problem that Christianity is addressing is death. Christianity is addressing the issue of death. Now, other religions try other things. Philosophies try other, other ideas. Christianity is after death. And everyone needs an answer to the death problem. Now, we've become habituated to it, we, to one degree or another, accept it. Perhaps we look the other way when a funeral comes our way and we must attend. In other words, we were there reluctantly and we try to put it out of our mind. But death is 
very much part of our life here on earth, and it is a problem. And in verse 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that this Christ is over all rule and over all authority. Now, in the spiritual world, the spirits have some authority, some as people access the spiritual world, they're hoping to have some, some power work in their favor. Uh, it's blow on the dice before you roll it at Vegas. I don't know what that's supposed to do. How are that? There's, there's some power somewhere that's going to help me get what I want. We want some power to come through for us. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, that this one is the head over all rule and authority. We need that authority. We need his authority because the problem of death needs to be addressed. And so what the Apostle Paul says is that for we who believe, we have been filled in him. Look at verse 10. Filled in him. What we need is this conquering Savior conquering death, but then also giving us his divine life whereby we are growing. He, from a position of ultimate authority, has now the power to grant us divine life which sustains us. Essentially, that's what happened in the early chapters of the book of Genesis when man fell and rebelled. Divine life departed from the soul the sustaining life, death began to be the experience of the human being. And divine life is what we've been made for. Divine life in terms of sustaining us, giving us the life that is life indeed. That's how Jesus described it, John 10.10. I have come that they might have life and the life more abundantly what he's saying there is the life man must live by, the, man, the life that man was always intended to have. It is my life in them. Now, doesn't this triumph over human religious traditions? Now, isn't this better than adherence to certain rites or religious uh, routines? This is extraordinarily powerful stuff because God is giving us his very life through his son. So this inspired scripture is telling us about the one who gives us true life. The word has come to us and it is backed up by the resurrected Jesus. Jesus spoke on this earth as one who knew he could grant people eternal life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's in John 10. In John 11, we have the record of Jesus standing outside the grave of a friend, Lazarus, and commanding him to come out of death and back into life. So here in Colossians, we have the one that we need, the one who can grant us eternal life and cause us, by his new authority, to bring us to life, to sustain us, to cause us to grow. Ultimately, Colossians 
the Colossian church was told that by this Christ, they are growing and they are sustaining and experiencing new vital growth. Colossians has many ideas that parallel 2 Peter 1.3. By his divine power, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And throughout the book of Colossians, uh, the tense of the verbs is our being, continuous and active, present, ongoing power is available for the Christian. And in Colossians 2.10, and in him you have been filled. I think back on my life, the early things I experienced, observed, the things I pursued, I wanted to be filled. I wanted to be filled. I wanted to be made alive. I was afraid of missing out on life. And of course, I had really no idea what life was about. No understanding about really who I was made for and what it would look like to, to, to follow this one I was made for. We start off this morning with kind of a heavy thought. What is the nature of things, right? What is the nature of things, right? Well, you have been made as a human being. You are a person. You have been made for a a personal world. As you interact with even looking at a, a beautiful mountain, you interact with it as a person. You want to be you want to interact with, with other human beings. And the nature of this world, the nature of reality, comes to us in the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not a concept. He's not a concept. He's a person. The nature of things is that we've been made to, become, to come alive through this person. And if we are not connected to this person, we have not found life. No matter what our following is as a rock star, we have not found life. We have not been filled with the life that is life indeed. May God give you this desire. If you're not a believer here today, May there be this new sense, a new understanding of I have not yet understood what life is about, what I've been made for, who I've been made for. I've been made to be filled with this life. And God seeks me. God has caused me to be here today to to hear about this exalted Jesus. And he seeks me, desires me to know him. If you're a Christian here today, The challenge for us and the the exhortation is how big is your Christ? How exalted is he? Is he really the one from whom that you derive your life, your sustenance? Is he your everything? And of course, we don't get that uh, in one sermon. We don't get it by just resolving to, to get it. But God is patient with us to show us more and more this exalted Christ in whom The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him we are filled. In him we are growing to appreciate his authority over all things.
particularly his triumph over death and his assurance that we have escaped its pull on us and its grip on us. Let's pray.